Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. If you're only asked when you go to school and when you work in a hospital, then it's not a big deal. But if it's asked for in more and more places, it becomes a potentially powerful set of information. If you don't want to be vaccinated, you don't have a passport, you don't go to that restaurant. So you find some place that will take you. Thanks for joining us on Intelligence Squared, the part of the series we call Agree to Disagree, uh, which is less a classic debate of the kind we do and more a nuanced conversation around debatable ideas. And I want to welcome our two guests to the program. Peter Baldwin is a history professor at UCLA who writes about a wide range of issues. He has a book coming out relevant to the topic we're discussing, Fighting the First Wave, Why the Coronavirus Was Tackled So Differently Across the Globe. Peter Baldwin, thanks so much for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you for having me. And Jay Stanley is a senior policy analyst with the ACLU. He is the editor of the ACLU's Free Future blog. He's also done a lot of writing and uh, authoring and co-authoring a lot of influential ACLU reports on the issues of privacy and technology topics. Jay Stanley, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So the question before us, or the questions before us, uh, come down to the pros and cons of what's being called a vaccine passport, by which we don't literally mean, probably don't literally mean a passport, but what we're talking about more broadly than a classic passport is a system where basically to get into a place, maybe a restaurant or maybe an airplane or a classroom or, or another country, you have to present authenticated proof that you have been vaccinated against the COVID-19 virus. And there are some tensions in this issue. Uh, what are the benefits of such an arrangement? Does it ensure safety? But also what are the negatives in terms of privacy and in terms of creating haves and have nots? On the whole, the question we're going to be looking at is, will a system that accords rights of entry to the vaccinated really help us get out of this pandemic mess in the best way possible? And is doing so going to do more harm than good? That's basically what we're going to be discussing. And I want to go first to Peter Baldwin on that basic question, the notion of having what we're broadly calling and loosely calling a vaccine passport. Again, we can talk about what we mean by that. Will it do more good than harm or more harm than good? Uh, I'm going to approach this by taking a step back because it seems to me that the question of vaccine passports is sort of a bit of a screen for the broader question of vaccines and whether or not we want to encourage them. A vaccine passport, besides uh, or precisely because of the convenience that it offers those who have been vaccinated, is a way of encouraging those who haven't to do so. So I think we need to realize that it's a sort of a, it's a way of approaching the question of do we encourage, do we even mandate uh, vaccines? So if you'll forgive me, just a couple sort of basic points about vaccines. Um, herd immunity is a public good. That means that it's something that has to be achieved collectively. The question is whether or not vaccines lead to herd immunity in the case of a corona va vaccine. Uh, some vaccines are sterilizing in the sense that they uh, prevent transmission, uh, some are not. We don't yet know whether the coronavirus is. The medical evidence so far is encouraging, but not definitive. But we do know that those people who have been vaccinated tend to be asymptomatic, they tend to be less transmissive, they have lower viral loads. And so, in a sense, it's a kind of partial public good, I guess we could say. So if we agree that we need to know whether someone is infected and whether someone poses a threat, then it seems to me we also need to encourage them to vaccinate. Now, we could instead test at every venue, as you say, every restaurant or whatever, but that would obviously be cumbersome. But for those who have to be tested and who test positive, the result is the same. They're excluded. 
So whether somebody proves their safety through a vaccine passport or through a negative test seems to me to be largely irrelevant. The two things are effectively equivalent and the choice between them is a matter of convenience. And if we agree that it's legitimate to determine who's infected and thus a threat, it seems to me that it's best to do so in the most convenient manner, which is to say, using the pressure that vaccine passports exert. Because these passports bring you some advantages, if you have one, they put indirect pressure on those who haven't been vaccinated to become vaccinated. But of course, so does constant testing, which is effectively the alternative. So we could require vaccination outright, but obviously we haven't gone that far yet, even though we do for other vaccines. And it seems to be the vaccine passports are kind of mild form of encouragement that gives those who vaccinate an advantage of by sparing the constant testing that they otherwise have to undergo. So my take on this is vaccine passports uh, are quite useful and yes, we should have them. All right. Thank you very much. I, you said so many things that raised a number of questions I'd like to come back to, but I first really want to give Jay Stanley a crack at the same question. Jay, take a couple of minutes on this. There's no question that in some limited circumstances, one needs to prove that one has been vaccinated. That has always been true, although those circumstances have been very pretty much limited in the U.S. to schools and healthcare facilities. It seems like the question that everybody's talking about right now is not should anybody ever have to prove that they've been vaccinated, but should we construct a new technological system and infrastructure for allowing people to do that, especially via their smartphones? I agree that the, the, the primary push, the primary need of our society right now is to reach herd immunity. If we can get to the point where COVID is a disease with low levels like measles and the like, then it becomes much easier to do contact tracing and to suppress it. And this whole conversation becomes moot in a way. And it's far from clear to me that the existing systems of paper documentary proof are deeply broken in need of replacing. It would be kind of a Herculean task to build the kind of technological systems that people are envisioning here. Um, it would require selecting a system from the many competing proposals that have already been advanced. The Washington Post counted 17, um, achieving widespread adoption of that system by both individuals and verifiers, the institutions that want to verify their status. And you'd have to have software applications for major phone operating systems, software that vaccine providers would use to, um, to load the credentials onto patients' phones, and software that verifying parties would need to read people's credentials. Um, this is the kind of thing that in software development would normally be unrolled over a series of years and not rushed out in a matter of weeks or even months. Um, and the danger is that we'll be rushing into something that is bad in a number of ways, has bad side effects. Um, number one, it could be inequitable. A lot of Americans don't have smartphones. I believe it's about 15% according to surveys by Pew. And those are disproportionately some of those from our most vulnerable communities, including People who are low income with disabilities or incarcerated are homeless, as well as more than 40% of people over age 65. And if not done right, this kind of a system could be very privacy invasive. For example, allowing the centralized tracking of when people present their passport. And it's not just a question of COVID vaccines. We could also see this once instituted um, become something much bigger. Pretty soon you're asked to load your other vaccinations or your other health records and other records. It could be a very, very handy system. And in fact, there's a huge um, desire by many in corporate America and elsewhere for a um, authentication system. And I think you'd see all kinds of authentication um, use cases poured into here. And pretty soon it's carrying your fishing license and your gym membership and everything else. Um, and so if it's done badly from a privacy point of view, that could have um, effects that go way beyond COVID. And, it could, and even if this system itself doesn't um, expand in that way, it could set a precedent for other systems which are being worked on. There's a whole conversation going on around identi digital identity and authentication systems. Um, and if we're going to do this system, if we must have this kind of a system, it must be privacy protective for all those reasons. Um, but you're, you're also saying, Jay, that you don't think we must have this kind of system. I just want to be clear on that. You're saying you're, you're sort of doing a two-part argument. It's let's keep it really limited. But if it has to become less limited, we have to be careful about it. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that um, I'm deeply skeptical of the need of it. Um, I understand some of the arguments. But if we are to have it, it needs to be done right. And I'm further skeptical that it will be done right. 
Okay, so a three-part argument there. So I, I want to bring back some of what you just said to Peter Baldwin. But Peter, before that, I want to make sure that I understand, I'm parsing apart your opening position correctly. On the one hand, you're saying that being able to verify who's vaccinated coming into a space is a is a pathway to making that space safer. In a sense, we're all used to the concept of bubbles. It 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 provides a sort of safer and bigger bubble, and that that's part of why a system of of, of vaccination verification to you is a is a net positive. But you're also saying that there's an incentive system built into this that. In a sense, if you, it's going to tell the person who wants to go shopping at a shopping mall that's insisting on passports, you're only going to get in there if you're vaccinated. So sorry, there's a, it's a carrot and stick thing. And the stick thing is you don't get to come in. Do I have that correct that you are talking about an incentive system being built into the vaccination, uh, to the vaccine passport concept? By definition, there's an incentive built into a vaccine passport because it allows you to get out of some other form of certification that's more troublesome to get into situations like dining or a flight or shopping or whatever it may be. I wouldn't ever say that you would have a situation where somebody who didn't have a vaccine passport could not do what, whatever the thing we're talking about. Now, obviously, we have to wait until everybody has been in the position to have been offered a vaccine. So, I mean, once the vaccines are voluntary, once once not having been vaccinated is an entirely voluntary choice. It's not because you couldn't get one. It's not because you couldn't log in. It's not because you're, uh, you know, not a resident or uh, a foreigner or, you know, whatever the issue is. As long as it's completely voluntary, then it seems to me we're justified in saying if you happen to be infected, you present a threat to your fellow human being, and therefore we have a legitimate interest in knowing that people who go into public spaces, into restaurants or airlines or whatever it may be, don't present a threat uh, to others. And if you can, and if, as I said at the beginning, if it's true that the vaccines are sterilizing, which we don't yet know, then there's a legitimate claim to ask for some proof of not being a threat. And that can happen either through a vaccine passport, but it could equally happen through some sort of test that you take on the spot. So somebody who wanted to go shopping who didn't have a vaccine passport could just as well submit to a test of the sort that no doubt you know will be developed and improved in coming months where you spit in a tube or something like that and get a result that's pretty accurate uh, back in a minute or two. Um, so it's the choice isn't between having a vaccine passport and not being allowed in at all, nor is it between having a vaccine passport and allowing anybody in. That would make no sense. It's between having a vaccine passport and having to climb some other hurdle to prove that you're not a threat. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. This is a reminder to all of you that Intelligence Squared U.S. is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization. We would love your support. Please visit www.intelligencesquaredus.org to learn more. More debate when we return. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. Jay Stanley, I'd, I'd like to get... Your response to, to the argument Peter just made that that uh, and one of the issues you raised was an equity issue. He's what he's saying is that first of all, uh, such a such a regime of, of vaccine authentication requirement w- should not be imposed until until truly it's voluntary and everybody has access to vaccines. A point we're not at yet, but we're closer than we were a while ago. Um, and that there would be for people who don't choose not to vaccinate. Uh, the option to be tested to get into a place, onto a plane, into a school, to another country. Uh, again, that would be come with an inconvenience, but but his point being one volunteers to be in that position. So does that lower your concern about the equity issue? Yeah, I mean, certainly the equity issue um, is lowered 
as more and more people actually get access to vaccines, it doesn't necessarily go away together. Even with universal access as a practical matter, a lot of people will still face barriers, undocumented people, communities that don't have vaccine sites or aren't near public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are contexts and places where there's no doubt that it makes sense to um, ask people to prove that they've been vaccinated. Um, many schools do so. Healthcare facilities, if you're, you know, working in a cancer ward with immunocompromised patients, there's no question that it's justified that you prove that you've been vaccinated. Um, travel to foreign countries uh, often will require it. Um, there's existing systems for doing that called the yellow card. Um, and then you get into a lot of other scenarios about where exactly we would ask for these proofs, for these, for these passports. Um, do you have to present it to get on the metro or the subway or the bus? Um, critical, critical facilities in our society. Um, you know, if, it, if it's a private organization, then they, they, can, they can ask for you to present a you know, a vaccine credential, just as they can require that you wear a tuxedo to enter their premises. Um, but um, I guess I would question this idea that it's so clear that we need to in use this kind of a system to incentivize people to get vaccinated. Um, I agree with the goal of, that we need to get as many people vaccinated as possible and reach herd immunity. A lot of this will go away if and when we do. And by the way, it's even if we don't reach this critical threshold of herd immunity, we can do engage in a lot of suppression um, just by raising the vaccine rates. Um, the United States has 43% of our population who's received one dose, and we have 15.4 cases per 100K. Israel has just 15 points more people who've gotten one dose than, than we have at 58%, and they're down to 0 0.9 cases. So just going up 15 points in vaccination to 58% reduced their new cases by 15-fold. So we can, we can do a lot to stamp COVID out from part of our daily lives without necessarily reaching this 80, 70% herd immunity level. You know, immuno, um, you know, experts aren't really sure exactly what the level is. But I mean, it'll undoubtedly work for some people if you require them to have a passport to incentivize them to get vaccinated. Not sure that it will work for people with low social trust, people who are distrustful of government, people with the kind of sentiments that inspired politicians in several states to ban vaccine passports already. But epidemiologists have always found that coercion is the least effective way of changing behavior in an epidemic. Um, it alienates people. It, it turns the authorities into enemies rather than to helpers. It's frequently counterproductive. Um, we're also seeing a lot of evidence that relatively minor and inexpensive incentives. Um, I think New, New Jersey was offering a free beer to people who got in. Uh, I don't know how well that worked out, but um, I've seen other things where just giving people a free day off actually got a lot of people who otherwise had no interest in a vaccine to go get vaccinated. And, uh, you know, finally, if we're looking to require proof of vaccination as an incentive, a lot of that will be accomplished by existing systems like the WHO, World Health Organization, yellow cards for international travel, and the CDC vaccine cards. Peter, how do you respond to some of what uh, Jay's saying? Um, I, I think we agree that the, I, I don't much care whether it's a digital one or we use the yellow vaccine card. Um, whether it's a paper, I, I totally agree that everyone the barrier for getting a vaccine passport should be as low as possible. There should be no sort of act of discrimination built into them, and it certainly shouldn't be limited to smartphone apps and that sort of thing. Um, I'd be you know, equally happy to see the old yellow cards or some equivalent like that um, used, used instead. So, so everyone should have a vaccine card, but the point is not that this is um, – only an incentive. The point is more, I mean, I, it is also an incentive. That was only one aspect of it. Um, there are other ways of getting vaccination rates up, and obviously we should be pursuing them, even if it amounts to sort of paying people a hundred bucks or giving them free beer. I, I'm obviously all for that. Um, the thing is, you go into an airplane, and what are you going to ask of people? Do you really want to sit, I mean, let's say our vaccination rate climbs to 70%. So in principle, statistically speaking, 30% uh, of the people in the airplane could be unvaccinated. Are you willing to go into an airplane having been vaccinated 
on the assumption that a third of the passengers are not. I doubt it very much, and I doubt the airlines are going to be willing to run those sorts of risks. So if they don't say, prove to me that you've been vaccinated, what are they going to say? They're going to say, everybody has to take the damn test. Uh, if, you were, if we can't count on the vaccination passports, and then you know, we're back to sort of the situation we're in now, which just seems cumbersome and pointless. So I'd rather be testing 30% of passengers than 100% of passengers. And I certainly don't want a situation where 70% of passengers who are vaccinated get on and run the risk of sitting next um, to 30% who are not. Well, to you, as you, you, you mentioned the, the situation that we're in now, but I, I want to look at it a different way for a moment. So now in many states, um, you can dine at a restaurant with social distancing. It has been deemed safe enough for people to go to restaurants and have some space and have a limitation on numbers. And there's no requirement for those people to have a vaccine passport to prove that they're negative, nor to prove that they've been vaccinated and they're out there eating now. If we were to institute a system you're talking about, those people couldn't go to the restaurant anymore. And I'm so I'm wondering, is that a step, would that be a step backwards in a sense for those individuals who could dine out last week, but not next week when that requirement is put in place either, either, either by the city or, or by the restaurant owner? Um, the restaurants I've been to recently, uh, they still take your temperature. I don't really see, in principle, that there's any difference between them taking your temperature before seating you and asking for a vaccine passport. No, but, there, but there are plenty of restaurants that are not, that are not, that are not. I was at one this past week in Washington, D.C., that I just made a booking and showed up and it was outdoors in a tent and we were spaced apart. Yeah. And okay, I, so you're telling me that you went to a restaurant that wasn't following the rules. I mean, you didn't object uh-huh. to, to having your temperature taken for the last six months, right? So what t- what's the difference between having that temperature taken and showing a vaccine passport? Is this temperature taking is a very primitive form mm-hmm. of, of making you jump a hoop. So I, I just don't, I don't see the, the, the difference in principle. Um, whether uh, in a restaurant, um, if somebody comes and they don't have a vaccine passport, it seems to me the, the right... Um, response to that, not now, but in a couple of months, will be spit in this tube and let's see your results and then we'll see you. Jay, do you want to jump in on this? Yeah. So I think that um, you have to balance. The fact is the conversation right now is around an electronic vaccine passport. It's not around paper. Um but 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 I I want to point out Peter has said he's not insisting on a on a digital he, that paper would be he, he doesn't really care what the the medium is it's more it's more the effect the impact and the ability to identify yeah um, and I think that there are a lot of complicated questions around again as I was saying around who should be able to demand evidence of a vaccine and who shouldn't be able to um, you know we probably don't think that a critical facility like the subway or the metro should be able to, but you know, if a restaurant wants to, then they 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 can. Um, if you look at an airline, you know, you're 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 looking at, especially if we can get 15% more Americans or 15 percentage points more Americans vaccinated, um, we're looking at, and and we have the same experience as Israel, where we have 0.9 cases per hundred thousand and you have been vaccinated, and the chance that your vaccine will prevent you from being infected, even if you are sitting on an airplane next to somebody who is A, not vaccinated, and B, actually is infectious, um, now you're talking about somewhat, and B, you actually catch it from them despite being vaccinated, you're talking about somewhat small risk at this point. Um, And I think it seems to be that a lot of Americans are deciding that that's the risk level that's akin to catching the flu and dying from the flu, which is a risk we've always been exposed to, but we've never wrapped our society around, you know, big new infrastructures because of that. Um, But for us at the ACLU, this conversation around vaccine passports is intimately wrapped up around the question of building new potentially privacy invasive, um, you know, digital infrastructures and, and the whole conversation around creating new digital identities, which is a much larger conversation. There are people working, uh, the DMVs are working on digital driver's licenses, which could have um, privacy and equity effects um, and so forth. So, you know, if, if the question is, the policy question is, to what extent do we require, allow um, restaurants to ask you to flash your CDC card? Um, 
you know, that I, I think that in some ways that's a much more straightforward conversation and a simpler one. What about Jay? Some institutions that 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 have the the authority within uh, the boundaries, their geographical boundaries, to require authentication of vaccination now. I'm thinking of a number of universities that have announced that this fall, if you want to go to school here, you're going to have to be vaccinated and you're going to have to show us that you're vaccinated. Certainly, there are medical institutions, nursing homes, et cetera, that have already essentially set up vaccine passport, loosely defined again, uh, systems. Do you have any concerns or, or, or do you take any any uh, anything positive out of the, the experiences they're having? Or do you think that there are red flags in those systems? We continue to have uh, concerns around equity and access. Um, those will never entirely go away. Um, the, uh, but, and, and I think that there's a spectrum. I mean, there's no question that if you're a nurse working in an oncology ward that you can and should, probably should be mandated to um, should, you know, get vaccinated and have proof of vaccine. Um, there are other situations where it would be superfluous and unnecessary, such as if you're entirely going to be outdoors, perhaps, as, as part of your job or what have you. I mean, there's a whole spectrum in between. And, um, you know, there are, there are ha- some hard policy questions in, the, in some of the edge cases. Um, but, you know, certainly we've seen vaccine mandates in, in school context for many years in our society with very little controversy. Um, our, our basic position is that, you know, a vaccine mandate is a significant civil liberties intrusion um, and shouldn't be imposed lightly, but that uh, it is actually um, justifiable where the risk of a disease to the public good is, is, is high enough and the solution, the vaccine is effective enough um, and sa- has been proven safe. And all of those conditions have been met in the case of COVID. Peter, um, as, as you said at the beginning, your goal, the, the goal of, of a vaccine authentication program, again, shorthand would be vaccine passport, um, is not only to, uh, to encourage people to get vaccinated, but to provide reassurance that we're in a safe space, uh, that we can function within, within, that, uh, within the boundaries of the place that you have to get, uh, you have to pass the vaccine passport test to get into, that it's okay in there, that it's safe in there. Do we really know that vaccination is delivering that benefit? I mean, the 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 vaccines are, are still new. Their ability to resist variants is remains unknown. They've really been, the, the thing that they've been measured to do really is to reduce the likelihood of severe illness and death, as opposed to making a slam dunk case that a vaccinated person can't infect another person. So what I'm what I'm asking you and throwing some challenge to is the notion that having vaccination in in a in a space is a strong strong guarantee that it's become safe as a result of that. I just want to ask you to take that on and if I'm wrong in my facts I'd like to be corrected in them. No no you're exactly right in your facts and that's what what I mentioned at the beginning. If vaccination if co- COVID vaccinations turn out to be sterilizing, which means that they prevent transmission, not just symptoms, then they are achieving what we want to. And then we would have, I think, as a society, some justifications. Uh, then, they, then they would achieve herd immunity and we would be justified in, in encouraging and possibly even mandating them. If they, if they don't achieve a sterilizing effect, if all they prevent are symptoms, but not transmission, then they're just an individual good. It, then it's like saying, you know, if you want to go out in the cold, you can put on a jacket if you want, but, you know, if you don't want to, that's your problem because all they do is protect you and not anybody else. But I've been sort of proceeding on the assumption that there is some public good element and some herd immunity, some prevention of transmission that comes with the vaccines. If that's not the case, then this entire discussion, you know, th- then I agree. There's absolutely nothing we shouldn't have. There's no point in having passports. There's no point in enforcing vaccines. Anyone who wants to take them um, can. So where where are we at the beginning of summer 2021 and knowing the answer to that question? Uh, how does that inform whether you would, for example, this summer move forward with a system of vaccine passports? So I, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I can't speak to the medical uh, issues. My understanding is there is evidence that 
they do prevent transmission. And as I said, there's evidence that they lower the viral load in any given individual, meaning that that individual will transmit less, is less likely to transmit. So um, there's some evidence, uh, and I think there's probably enough to proceed on, on that basis. Um, whether, as we stand now, with not, not having achieved maximum uh, vaccination rates yet, um, and knowing what we do about the variations, not knowing whether the mutations are susceptible to vaccines and so forth, I would be very hesitant. Um, and I say this, Jay, with all due respect to, you know, the Israelis, yes, it's great, the rates are coming down. But, you know, there are countries uh, that thought they had gotten this licked, uh, you know, that are turning corners and rates are going up again, you know, um, uh, uh, Japan, Bhutan, um, you know, these, these variations are nothing to sneeze at, and I wouldn't start giving away uh, potential tools in our toolkit uh, just yet. I mean, I don't think we're sort of that far along. Now, you do raise a, a broader question, if I may return to the comment, Jay, that you made earlier. And you're, of course, completely right. You know, th there's a spectrum of things here. You know, an airline is one thing. You're sitting next to a bunch of people for many hours. Uh, I, I suspect we're going to be having passports or vaccine proof or tests for a long time in airlines. A subway, on the other hand, is something where obviously the public has a right to go in. You can't tell people you can get on, you can't. I could imagine that there might be some sort of trade-off that we would you know, continue to insist on masks, which we now know, of course, cut transmission even in places like subways and restaurants. You know, that's they're big private businesses. That's a totally different matter because you could imagine restaurants actually making uh, the requirement to have vaccinated and prove it a kind of a part of their business model. You know, this is a, a safe restaurant. Uh, swingers clubs during the AIDS epidemic, um, you know, did something similar sometimes. Uh, so that, that, but that would be an individual decision. If you don't want to be vaccinated, you don't have a passport, you don't go to that restaurant. Uh, you find some place that will take you. So... Um, that's sort of a, there's a spectrum is all I'm trying to say and I agree we're slowly heading in the direction where at some point you know God willing uh, we won't need a vaccine passports but you know we're not there yet and I, and I still seems to me that even if we don't go down this elaborate digital direction that you're worried about and I think quite rightly that there are all kinds of issues uh, privacy issues with this direction even if we don't go down that route the idea of sort of showing your CDC card or your NHS card or whatever it is you've got is likely to be something that many people find untroublesome and many um, the organizers of collective events, whether they be planes or raves or operas or whatever, are going to sort of um, rely on. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. You're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm your host, John Donvan. Let's return to our debate. Peter, Jay asked the question early on, do you really want the government knowing whether or not you've been vaccinated? Well, what about, what's your answer to that? Uh, do I want the government to know? Yes, absolutely. Because, I mean, first of all, it's the government that's putting this out. Second of all, the government already knows. I mean, there are many parts in this country that have, um, you know, the southwestern states have some collective where the, in the database, you know, they know precisely whether you've been vaccinated. Why on earth should they not? They paid for it. They gave it to me. I asked them for it. I have absolutely no objection with the government knowing. Jay? Just to clarify, I don't think I said the government. I said we wouldn't want the government necessarily knowing everywhere that you've presented your vaccine passport. I see, I see. Thanks um, for that clarification. This, this, okay. every, yes. every state does have a database of those who have been vaccinated in the state. Um, the CDC does not have one big collective database, but the states have their own. Um, the CDC, I believe, can access it. And, and various medical facilities can access the databases in their state, which is how the electronic vaccine passports are envisioned as operating, which is that some some entity with access to these are called IISs, immunity information systems in the states, the databases, would access it and then see that you, you know, you, Jay Stanley, are in that database and then act, give you this digital certificate. Or we, we would hope if it's done, a, um, a more, you know, a QR code um, that would replace the CDC card in these um, in, the, in how these systems are envisioned. So, so Jay, the, 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 the concern is not, so I, was, I want to be clear that you did not 
asked the question whether you want the government knowing whether or not you've been vaccinated, but basically where you've where you've checked in to be to get into a place, if I understand. So it's about tracking one's movements, being able to track one's movements. Yes. If you're only asked when you go to school and when you work in a hospital, then it's not a big deal. But if it's asked for in more and more places, it becomes a rich trail of information about the places that you've gone. And when you start looking or thinking about how that could expand over time to include other sources of information beyond your COVID vaccination um, and, uh, and being used for many, many other things, it becomes over time a potentially powerful set of information. Um, I mean, there are people who are working on electronic identity systems that envision them, be, them being used over the internet. So now we, you have to present an authenticated, tied government ID in order to get to a website. Um, and we could see lots of websites using those kinds of systems. And, and now these trails of, of, a, of your presentations are include not just physical places you go, but also places you go online. Um, and, and, and this is, in some ways... Um, should be this conversation viewed through the lens of this gathering battle about digital identi identification and authentication and how that's going to work and whether or not it will be privacy protective. And there's a whole sort of industrial identity complex of companies that want to get into this thing, and they're not very privacy protective the way many of them are doing it. Peter, I assume you think those are, yeah, you would recognize those are legitimate concerns. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, privacy issues are obviously super concerning, um, but I just would all also point out that that um, I too don't think the government should know precisely every place I've checked into or where I dined last week or that sort of thing. But on the other hand, you know, nor do I think that Google should. And yet I don't turn off you know, the tracking on my Google Maps. So Google can tell me precisely those things much better than any government database uh, as it stands now. So, you know, there's a bit of, we're all being a bit hip hypocritical, except for those of us who, you know, religiously take out our SIM cards when we go dark. There's no question that our privacy is in sorry shape in many respects with respect to big companies like Google tracking us and everything. But there's a little bit of a leaky boat structure to that argument, which is, you know, the boat is leaking under your seat. So we're not going to, we don't have to worry about the fact that it's leaking under my seat. In fact, let's not worry about any of the leaks. Um, you know, we try and protect privacy in, in all respects, <laughs> not uh, both vis-a-vis -vis Google and the other companies, but also we, in, in trying to prevent even more scary infrastructures for tracking from emerging. I take that point entirely, but I would just add to that that we, we, we allow all kinds of pri privacy violations or tracking or whatever you want to call it um, for incredibly trivial matters. This happens to be a matter that's absolutely fundamentally crucial. The worst crisis in the last century, you know, an enormous uh, cost in so many ways. And this might be an occasion not to sweat the privacy issue um, quite as much as, as we haven't been doing for other things. I mean, our view generally has always been that, yes, our civil liberties have to give away in an emergency. And this is an emergency. And, and you know, we have seen many civil liberties curbed. In the United States, without the ACLU objecting, um, in terms of people's you know, freedom of movement and and so on, um, but when you do give away privacy or other liberties for in this for, for the sake of dealing with an emergency, you need to make sure that you're getting a good bargain out of it. Um, you need to make sure that the the privacy that you're giving away will actually be helpful. Um, and it's it's far from clear that that's the case here, especially vis-a-vis -vis what I said about um, you know mandatory systems often being counterproductive. I want to I, I wanted to make this a little bit more global now. We've been talking, I think, primarily about a domestic situation. And I've made the point a few times that we're not talking about, technically speaking, anything that's like a passport that allows you to travel between countries. But there is, a, there is and this has come up a little bit, a precedent for having to have a kind of passport to let you go from one country to another. Um, you know, my, my, I have personal experience. Uh, for many years as a foreign correspondent, I was traveling particularly in Africa. To, to get into certain countries, I had to present proof that I had been uh, vaccinated, for example, for yellow fever. I, I had a very interesting experience going into Lagos, uh, which was then the capital of Nigeria, no longer is. And um, I landed at the airport. I had all my papers in order. My vaccinations were lined up. And the uh, the uh, customs uh, guy looked at my card and said, this is out of date. And it wasn't. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, either you give me $50 or it's two weeks quarantine. And so it was a shakedown operation. I, uh, I ignored him and said, thank you anyway. And I walked out, got my bag, and I walked out to get a taxi in the parking lot. And I looked behind me, and the guy is actually running after me 
for his $50, which I, I gave him. So there were some holes in the system, let me put it that way, but there was a system and there is a system of, of requirements for vaccinations to get into certain places and amount to a sort of passport. I've also heard the criticism, though, in the last few uh, months that we're in a state in the world where the, the 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 vaccines are predominantly available in the better off countries. And some, in fact, some countries, including the United States, have been accused of hoarding vaccines and that there's a gross inequity in setting up a system where Americans would be able to go to Africa, but Africans couldn't come to America because they can't get access to the vaccine. I, I want to ask you both. I, I'm not sure there's a disagreement between the two of you about that, but I think we've moved into the point in the conversation where we're exploring some nuance here. Uh, ask you both about that reality of imposing a vaccine passport system in the more literal sense on the world until this thing is sorted out, which may be a long time if we're talking about the globe, uh, whether that is uh, unfair, whether that's necessary, whether it's workable. Uh, Peter, could you take that question first? Sure. Um, it's not as though a vaccine passport is about Americans going abroad and others can't. I mean, we, we will, we, if we're talking about the U.S., We'll make up our own mind about who we let in. We already do. I mean, this talk about Americans being allowed to go if they're vaccinated to Europe this summer is all well and good. But has anyone been talking about Europeans being able to come here? I mean, right now, it is impossible to get into the U.S. if you're not a U.S. citizen or married to one. Or So we set our own rules just as the rest of the world sets its own rules for that sort of thing. So I, I, I don't really see that there's that in this particular case about passports, that there's a global inequitable system. I mean, there obviously is in terms of the distribution of vaccines, but that's sort of a whole nother matter. Jay, what about that for you? Yeah, I think I agree with everything that Peter has said. And um, he, he's thought about this glo from a global perspective more than I have as a um, as part of the American Civil Liberties Union. We tend to focus domestically. Um, so I, um, I think, you know, we take it for granted that there will be countries around the world that do require um, proof of vaccination before they allow Americans into their countries. And um, there will be, you know, some system will be necessary for doing that. The question is whether, uh, and from some perspectives, that makes this even more of a Herculean task in terms of creating a new electronic system because it needs to be compatible not only uh, as a compatible standard, not only within the United States, but around the world. And that means that you're bringing sort of international standards bodies into play here, many of which don't really care about privacy. They, uh, many of them have representation by authoritarian countries that not only don't care about privacy, but actively want to track their citizens as much as possible. Um, and uh, so, you know, I guess I would, I would be worried about what kind of an inter a standard sort of the well, international let, global. Let, let me reposition the question a little bit. So, um, let us say that um, Austria uh, or, or the EU, the, the European Union, um, begins to require um, documented vaccine passport type of thing, like the yellow fever card that I once had, to, to I've been vaccinated against COVID, I can therefore enter Europe. Americans have access to the vaccine, Americans can get that card, Americans can enter Europe under that regime. People in Africa can't get the vaccine, so they can't get to Europe. That's patently unfair. But I want to know: is it unfair in a way that's that is um, is was is is so problematic, Peter, that it would argue against setting up a system like that? Would the does the unfairness trump the safety issue? Whether it does or not is sort of immaterial because that unfairness already exists in countless forms in every Riza regime uh, that's imposed. I mean, you can't fly from Nigeria or Africa to Europe just like that, whether you have a vaccine passport or not. It, it, you know, you're prevented from doing so in so many ways. This would just be yet another little wrinkle. I, I want to also take a look at an interesting thing that's happening here domestically, which is that the, the opposition to a vaccine passport regime has has opponents here on both the left and the right. And on from the right, we hear that it's an impingement, such a regime would be an impingement upon individual liberty. From the left, we hear that it would be an impingement upon equity. I think vac vaccines, period, have always been kind of caught between these two spaces. But I just wanted to ask you, Jay, to sort of, you know, share your thoughts on the fact that 
there are there are there are strange bedfellows in opposition. ACLU works on many civil liberties issues. I have always focused on privacy, and in privacy, among all the issues we work on, is probably the issue where we have seen the most eye to eye with those on the right. Um, privacy really is not a left right issue. It tends to be kind of all over. It tends to be the left and the right against the center, um, as we're seeing here in some ways. Um, you know, when it comes to to this specifically, um, it's it's complicated. Some of the reasons for opposing them are stupid, and others are, um, you know, what's a stupid reason? I'm just curious. People who think that wearing a mask or imposing a social distancing requirements in, in public places is an infringement on liberty are not thoughtful about the balance between the needs of individual liberty and and the needs of collective liberty, which, you know, when you're looking at an epidemic, at the end of the day, we are one big biomass and individualism breaks down to some extent. And I think with the ACLU, we're very nuanced and thoughtful about that and in making those trade-offs and recognizing when one must give away to the others. On the other hand, I think that there is a distrust of government and um a, a, a fear of regimentation and turning America into a checkpoint society on the right that I think is quite healthy. Um, you know, I think as a cultural matter, we do have a, a distrust of centralized power that can be very healthy. And I think that that um, it, it exists both on the right and on the post-Watergate left in America. And, and Peter, same question to you, that, that, that your vision for what would be a, a good, workable, productive, useful, beneficial system has, uh, is being assaulted from both the left and the right. Let me sort of, um, put it as a, as a question, if I may, because I'd be curious to know, what, Jay, what your answer to this is. It seems to me that all, all your objections to vaccine passports could equally be leveled against any sort of track and trace system. And if that's true, I mean, track and trace is, you know, fantastically invasive of our privacy. You know, people call you up and want to know where you've been and where you are and who you're hanging out with and who have you seen in the last two weeks and, you know, all that sort of stuff. I mean, arguably, it's much more invasive than a, than a vaccine passport. And yet, you know, it's also arguably the one mechanism by which, come the next pandemic, before we have a vaccine, we are going to be able to snuff it out and not have as many people die as did in this epidemic. I don't know if you guys have seen Thomas Pueyo's um, latest blast. You know, he's the guy who did the hammer and dance um, uh, emails, blogs that were read by 40 million people. Well, you know, he sort of mapped out where most people have died. And of course, the vast majority of people, the 3 million people who have died so far, you know, have died in, in Western nations that simply could not had, didn't have the administrative capacity, had too much resistance from citizens to Im- institute functioning track and trace systems. And one of his arguments is, look, you know, we simply stood there with our hands tied by ourselves because we could not do something that other countries, many of them perfectly functioning democracies, were able to do without thinking about it. And one of the reasons we didn't, besides our administrative incompetencies, uh, was a lot of sort of screaming and shouting about uh, privacy regulation. Um, you know, again, really the one thing you want to be worrying about in the midst of a pandemic? I mean, my understanding is that contact tracing went on all throughout the pandemic in America um, and wasn't really slowed down by any privacy concerns, unless you're talking about contact tracing apps, the technological idea of doing um, proximity contact tracing or proximity tracing. And that um, that failed for a number of reasons that had nothing to do with privacy. Um, COVID is, first of all, COVID is a devilishly difficult disease to trace because A, it is transmitted through the air. B, the community infection rates have been very high and, and contact tracing is much more difficult when a community is just swamped with cases. And three, you had a lot of asymptomatic transmission, which makes it very difficult to figure out who's given it to whom, as opposed to something like AIDS, where you just need to find out who had sex with whom for the most part. Um, uh, location tracking doesn't really work well as a means of doing contact tracing. Our phones are just not that accurate and Bluetooth can't reliably measure distances. Um, contact tracing is a difficult and sensitive job. You're asking people to basically inform upon their friends, family, and colleagues in a way that can lend the, can make those friends 
have to um, be quarantined for weeks and can mess up their lives and cause them to lose income and so forth. Um, and so experts that we've talked to say that contact tracing requires very special skills that just can't be replicated in, in an app, an automated app on one's phone. Um, so I think people just weren't sold on the value of those apps and, and they were never going to succeed unless people were forced to install them. And I think Americans rightly recoiled from the idea of, you know, turning our phones into um, ankle bracelets by requiring people to install government software on their phones. Um, but my understanding is that the old fashioned kind of shoe leather contact tracing never stopped and was always done by local health departments. And it, it is indeed a crucial part of um, stomping out a new epidemic. And it also could actually become um, newly valuable once again, once we do get um, to uh, very high levels of suppression and or herd immunity where you have cases pop up here and there. Um, and, and, and it can be crucial in stopping them from turning into wider outbreaks. Um, but it just hasn't worked because we've been so swamped with cases. Jay and Peter, I, I want to say you've really made us think about a lot of this in different ways. It was very interesting to hear where you agreed and, and where you both disagreed. And while you've both said that ultimately the debate we're having is going to be moot because we get to the point where there is herd immunity or, or in some fashion or other, the pandemic ends and the virus is suppressed this time. We all know there's going to be a next time. So I think it's very important to be having these conversations, thinking these things through. And Peter Baldwin and Jay Stanley for doing this with us and doing it so well uh, and doing it so civilly where you disagreed. I want to say thank you to both of you for joining us on Intelligence Squared. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. I hope that you enjoyed it just as much as we did. Intelligence Squared is a nonprofit generously funded by listeners like you and by the Rosencrantz Foundation. Claire Connor is our CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Amy Kraft is chief of staff and leads production. And Shay O'Mara is our consulting producer. Jen Zelmer is our senior researcher. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. And I'm your host, John Donvan.